Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 202 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Media Coverage and Public Relations. The coming flight of Apollo 11 captured more worldwide attention than any previous mission. Countless numbers of people tried to identify with, seek a meaning for, or fashion or obtain some keepsake of mankind's first visit to a celestial neighbor. These desires were expressed in poetry, in prose, in symbolic articles, and in pictorial evidence. Whole issues of magazines, sections of newspapers, brochures, television and radio specials, books, bric-a-brac, stamps, medallions, photographs, pieces of clothing, record albums, and magnetic tape records commemorated the occasion. Some people made suggestions. Some bluntly demanded a piece of the moon, and some sought to get as close as possible to the launch and flight control areas. Most of the millions of people relied on radio, television, and newspapers for a first-hand account of the manned lunar landing experience. NASA officials moved carefully and deliberately in meeting the demands brought on by Apollo 11. Early in 1969, Julian Shear, Assistant Administrator for Public Affairs in Washington, wrote Gilruth stressing past policy and operational philosophy. Shear told Gilruth that NASA did not seek coverage of space, but would make their facilities and their people available. But there would be no free rides, no free meals, and no glad handing. The crux of Shear's letter was his determination to get Gilruth's public affairs officer, Paul Haney, out of the dual role as full-time mission commentator and as supervisor of the whole range of public affairs activities in Houston. When Scheer first came to NASA in 1963, he found that 
John Shorty Powers appeared to be favoring the television industry in the coverage of Mercury events. Shear also disliked the identification of Powers as the voice of Mercury control. The headquarters leader sent Haney to Houston to replace Powers. In the ensuing years, although he trained a team of mission commentators, Haney seemed to be emulating Powers, becoming known as the voice of Gemini, and then moving into a similar role for Apollo. Shear then gave the Houston public affairs leader the choice of remaining as mission commentator or confining himself to his duties as head of the public affairs office. When Haney chose to remain as commentator, Shear changed his mind. He then asked Gilruth to transfer Haney to Washington. Rather than being sent to Washington and giving up mission commentating, Haney decided to resign. Now I have a May 12, 1969 interview of retired Air Force Colonel John Shorty Powers giving his opinion on the way Haney was treated. I'm worried uh, about the competence of management that would wait till three weeks before a mission to remove what I think is a key member of the crew. Uh, this is the guy that, that did all of the Gemini program. He was my successor after Mercury and is the key guy in deciding what information you're going to get and therefore what the public is going to get and when they're going to get it and to bring in a relative stranger. And, and that worries me. After Haney's retirement, Shear sent Brian Duff from NASA headquarters to run the Houston activities. Duff did not talk from Apollo control at all. The new voices became John McLeish, Terry White, John Riley, and Douglas K. Ward. Shear then turned to another objective, making the Apollo 11 astronauts more available to the news media than past crews had been. He wanted the public to see the astronauts as human beings to foster a better understanding of their training goals. In a letter to Deke Slayton, Shear warned that there would be changes. Shear believed the practice of allowing one crew press conference with each TV network for a limited time and in a sparse surroundings had presented the astronauts as stereotypes. Shear wanted each crew member to spend at least a full day with each of the networks and wire services in locations selected by the media. If, for example, they wanted the commander in Ohio, his home state, then he should go to Ohio and give the reporters a more intimate glimpse of Armstrong the man rather than Armstrong the astronaut. Shear asked for more time with the astronauts for still and motion pictures as well. He also suggested that the wives of the Apollo 11 crews might attend a tea given for the women of the press corps. Shear reminded Slayton that the networks on occasion would cover the mission for 24 hours at a stretch and would need many human interest stories as fillers. The public would be better able to share in the ventures of these men on the moon 
if it knew who they were, why they were there, and what they were doing. A knowledge that could be achieved only through more time with the men and better training documentation, films, and taped reports of the progress to the launch. Slayton gave in on a few points, some parts of training, for example, but dug in his heels on the other demands. Slayton said homes and wives are personal, and landing on the moon does not change that. Slayton also remarked that he did not think any hard sell was necessary for Apollo 11. According to Slayton, Apollo 11 was just another mission which may land on the moon first, but definitely would not go anywhere on schedule if he could not keep the crew working instead of entertaining the press. But Shear did not give up. George Lowe wrote Robert Gilruth that 30 members of the press corps would attend a rehearsal of the lunar surface extravehicular demonstration requested by headquarters on April 18th. But there would be no news coverage of the formal session four days later. Shear fought and overturned that decision, too. Phillips notified Lowe that Miller and Shear had agreed to let a five-man news media pool watch the formal session. In May, Slayton and Duff worked out an understanding for more extensive reporting of various phases of training. And the July 4th issue of Life magazine titled Off to the Moon included a report from the home front. Armstrong was depicted fishing with his sons, baking homemade pizza, and playing piano duets with his wife, Jan. Collins was shown trimming roses in the backyard, and Aldrin taking his kids to Astro World. These things would not have happened if there was not a public relations requirement. In truth, the astronauts were too busy training to have much of a family life. Slayton also gave into a pre-launch press conference on July 5th, just 11 days before launch. By this time, the crew was well into their 21-day medical quarantine. So, on this day, they strolled on the stage wearing hospital masks and did not remove them until... They had taken their places inside a plastic enclosed booth. One reporter asked whether any precautions had been taken to prevent the men from catching germs from their families. Collins answered, quote, My wife and children have signed a statement that they have no germs. Seriously, there are no special precautions being taken. End quote. Collins received the least amount of questions. The journalists were much more interested in his crewmates and his commander. For seven months now, Armstrong had been telling interviewers that he wished the press would convey that Apollo 11 was a massive group effort, that it was a mistake to focus on him. But he had not been successful. At the press conference, one reporter suggested to him that as the first man to set foot on the moon, he would be so famous that his personal life would cease to exist. The reporter then asked, Do you have any thoughts on this prospect? Armstrong said, 
I suppose if there is any recognizable disadvantage to being in the position I'm in, then that is it. I think that's a fair trade. Now here's a couple clips from that press conference. Korean of the Swedish Broadcasting. In the lighter way here, uh, you're now taking the trip of all trips of mankind. Can I ask each one of you, which place would you like to go to for a vacation when you come back to Earth? Well, I, I think that the situation being what it is now, the place I would most like to go immediately is the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. <laughs> if, if, I have, if I'm able to go there, we will have succeeded. I wondered if each of the three could tell us very briefly how your families have reacted to the fact that you're taking this historic mission. Well, I think uh, my particular case, uh, my family has had five years now to uh, become accustomed to uh, this eventuality and over six months to, uh, to face it quite closely. I think they, they look on this as a tremendous challenge for me. They look up, upon it also as a, uh, an invasion somewhat of their privacy and a uh, removing of my presence away from the family for a considerable period of time. I'm not sure exactly uh, whether this is the overriding feature uh, over and above uh, some of the uh, other more pleasant aspects of uh, job that I have as far as uh, it affects my family. Neil, uh, Marvin Miles, Los Angeles Times. I'd like to know, I understand, I understand that you're going to take manual control of the descent. Can you tell us at what point, how low you will take that control, how far you will burn down, and how low you could stage in the board and go to apps if necessary? We, we have made some significant improvements in, in the flight control system and the computer's interaction with that system in recent months uh, allows us to go into somewhat hybrid methods of manual and automatic. Uh, the predicted method at this point, although we have a great deal of flexibility and choice based on the on the situation at the time, would be to uh, maintain manual control of attitude and automatic control of throttle. Uh, through the final descent from an altitude of uh, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 feet until such time as the automatic throttling rate of descent was unsatisfactory, at which time we'll go full manual on the throttle, that is, rate of descent command on the throttle, which is operating through the computer. Should that become unsatisfactory, then we can go to a full manual throttle, uh, flying it in a manner like a normal VTOL machine would be flown. James Burke, BBC. You have mentioned that your flight, like all others, contains very many risks. What, in view of that, will your plans be in the extremely unlikely event that the lunar module does not come up off the lunar surface? Well, it's an unpleasant thing to think about. We've chosen not to think about that up to the present time. We, uh, we don't think that's at all a likely situation. It's certainly a possible one. But uh, at the present time, we're left without recourse at that account. Colonel Aldrin, uh, on Apollo 8, uh, you were the uh, command module pilot in the backup crew. And this one, you're the lunar module pilot. How interchangeable in your preparation for this, or for that matter, in the flying of it, are the uh, roles? 
of the crew? Well, at the uh, stage that we're at right now, I think they're not very interchangeable. Uh, prior to uh, my assignment as backup uh, command module pilot on Apollo 8, uh, we were together as uh, in slightly different roles, and it was I'm not mistaken because uh, Mike was dropped out of the uh, mission that uh, we had an adjustment of the crews that, that put me from the lunar module pilot into the command module pilot's position. Uh, for Apollo 8, uh, there was no lunar module, so this was not much of an adjustment. Uh, it was just moving from uh, an emphasis on systems to more in, in navigation. Now, since I had previous training uh, to some degree in the lunar module, why then moving back into that position was was not too difficult a task. Uh, Mr. Armstrong, uh, er earlier there was some concern expressed that uh, you were rushed to get in all your training necessary for this flight. What is the, uh, uh, the state of your training readiness now? The, uh, the reason that that was a concern is that the, the final training for a crew is the last thing that takes place. In other words, the procedures must be developed and the simulations completely set up and the simulators ready to fly and the checklists made and so on before the final training can take place. And these, of course, were the pacing items, these intermediate things to the final training. At this point in time, uh, we have a high confidence level that the procedures and uh, checklists, simulations that we are now operating are correct and will fly the mission the way they are now detailed. So, uh, of course, there was a good deal of concern in our own minds and, and many other people in, in the organization that all these things for the descent, ascent, surface work would fall into place in time. We do uh, feel at this point that we've been very fortunate in, in having those things uh, make the schedule along with the, with the hardware, which of course is on the pad now and ready to fly. Shear also suggested that top-level officials from both headquarters and the field participate in drafting articles directed at the public for a New York Times project. In April, he asked these managers to make out invitation lists for the next two launches and to choose a cross-section of guests who had no direct connection with aerospace activities and who had never seen a launch. With the approach of Apollo 11, Scheer assumed a stronger, more aggressive role in NASA's public affairs and he used the pressure of the mission as a lever to get the agency to accept his thinking. One item of worldwide public impact, television, raised no issues whatsoever on this flight. Slayton even urged the need for some kind of erectable antenna. The astronauts could not, after all, be expected to wait patiently in the lander until the Earth turned Goldstone, California, and its 64-meter radar dish into line with spacecraft so they could go walk on the moon. There was also some question whether the Goldstone facility would be available, 
since it was needed for a Mariner flyby of Mars in July. At a management council meeting in March, the prospect of doing without the big California dish, as well as a similar one at Parks Australia, forced agreement on a contingency plan for a portable antenna. Eventually, both Goldstone and Parks were free to cover Apollo 11, but proper alignment with Goldstone was still a problem. Lowe decided to delay the lunar module's descent by one revolution to make sure that they had coverage from Goldstone. If the launch was delayed, and if Parks was better situated to pick up the signals, the relay would travel from the lunar module to Parks to Sydney by microwave across the Pacific Ocean via synchronous satellite in Telsat number 3 to the control room in Houston to the television networks and then to the television sets throughout most of the world. Goldstone would shorten that route. Some Apollo managers were worrying about the quality of pictures they could expect. Looking at a photograph of a simulation, Phillips observed to Lowe that the first step onto the lunar surface might be in the shadows, and the light might be too bright in the stowage area, as the astronauts unloaded the experiment packages. Phillips asked Lowe to see about this. Because of the historic significance of the first steps on the moon warranted NASA's maximum effort. Lowe did not believe the results would be as bad as Phillips feared, but Houston set up scale models under various lighting conditions to make sure of good coverage of the crewman as he descended to the lunar surface. Before he left Houston, Paul Haney had suggested that the surface camera be set up to photograph the liftoff from the moon. The idea was exciting, but it was too late to arrange for Apollo 11. Perhaps it could be used on future missions. Color television was so effective on Apollo 10 that it was adopted for the following mission, but only in the command module. Max Faget was more than mildly upset when he learned that so much of the television, motion, and still photography plan for Apollo 11 would be in black and white. To him, it was almost unbelievable that the culmination of a $20 billion program would be recorded in such a stingy manner. Lowe explained that some of the scientists insisted on black and white film because it had a higher resolution than the color film. Furthermore, with no atmosphere to absorb the solar energy in the ultraviolet, color film might not turn out well on the lunar surface. Moving on, in January of 1969, NASA began work on plans to commemorate Apollo 11 symbolically. Phillips wrote Gilruth, Werner von Braun, and Kurt DeBus that ideas discussed at headquarters included planting United Nations and United States flags, putting decal flags of the UN member states on the lunar module descent stage, and leaving a capsule on the surface with information about the Apollo program and personnel and copies of international agreements. Gilruth asked the top Houston staff for suggestions. The consensus was that the American flag should be raised in a simple ceremony, this proposal was supported by private citizens from east coast to west. 
Slayton said the pilots would probably carry personal items, as had been done in the past, but most of these would be brought back. All they intended to leave on the lunar surface, besides the descent stage, would be such things as the experiments, backpack, and lunar overshoes. Slayton added that he had no objection to anything that might be decided on as a symbol of the mission, but it must meet weight and stowage requirements and place no additional training demands on the crew. Administrator Payne assigned Associate Deputy Administrator Willis Shapley as committee chairman to draft recommendations. Shapley's group met for the first time on April 1st and considered three categories. First, articles to be left by the astronauts, such as flag or flags, commemorative plaques, etc. Number two, articles to be attached to the descent stage, inscriptions, documents, microfilm. Number three, articles to be taken to the moon and brought back, photographs, flags, stamp dies, tokens, etc. The chairman reported that Scheer and Assistant Administrator for International Affairs Arnold Frutkin were working out words for a plaque. Shapley also said that suggestions were being solicited from the Smithsonian Institution, the Library of Congress, the Archivist of the United States, the NASA Historical Advisory Committee, the Space Council, and Congressional Committees. The flag proposal was the most persistent. There were also discussions about carrying miniature flags of all the United Nations in a metal box shaped like a pyramid, but not the official flag of the United Nations or any other organization. The aim of the whole committee was to make it clear that regardless of the symbol chosen, the United States had landed on the moon first. Shapley's committee released its decision on July 2nd. Only the flag of the United States would be unfurled and left on the moon. Miniature flags of all the United Nations, the United States, its 50 states, its territories, and the District of Columbia would be stowed in the lunar module and returned to the Earth. Other items to be brought back included a stamp die, a stamped envelope to be canceled en route by the crew, and two full-size United States flags that had flown over the two houses of Congress to be carried in the command module. Personal items would be carried by the pilots in their kit bags after approval by Deke Slayton. Two important items besides the flag would be left on the moon. One was a micro-miniaturized photo print of the letters of goodwill from representatives of other nations. The other was a plaque affixed to the descent stage as a permanent monument to be unveiled by the crew. It would depict the Earth's two hemispheres, their continents and oceans, but no national boundaries, bearing the words, quote, here men from the planet Earth first set foot on the moon. We came in peace for all mankind, end quote. It would be inscribed with the signatures of the three astronauts and the President of the United States. To forestall any charges that the United States was attempting to establish sovereignty over the moon, 
Robert Allnut, NASA's Assistant Administrator for Legislative Affairs, prepared a statement containing the gist of a 1967 treaty governing all space exploration. The United States, one of the 89 signatories, had no intention of claiming the moon. Suggestions for honoring the landing on both the moon and on Earth came from throughout the country. One person thought the plaque should be inscribed with the names of the astronauts who had lost their lives during the program. One argued that the carrier, John F. Kennedy, should recover the crew after the journey. One suggested that a complete Apollo-Saturn stack be erected in the style of the Washington Monument in the nation's capital. And one recommended that the ashes of recently deceased space author Willie Lay be placed on the moon. Mike Collins mentions in his book that two of the astronauts' non-technical chores were thinking up names for their spacecraft and designing a mission emblem. Shear did not like the call sign selected by the crews of McDivitt and Tom Stafford. He urged Lowe to make sure those chosen for the lunar landing, which would be witnessed by all mankind, were more appropriate. Lowe and Armstrong agreed that the names should not be frivolous. At the end of May, Slayton submitted a patch which headquarters turned down. It depicted an eagle, an obvious name for the lander, carrying an olive branch in its beak and descending to a lunar landscape with Apollo 11 at the top of the emblem. Headquarters thought the eagle's extended talons looked menacing. Although shifting the olive branch from the beak to the claws presented a more reassuring aspect, and won headquarters approval. Collins wrote that he hoped the eagle dropped that branch before he touched down. Collins had his own problems in choosing a name for the command module. He was still wrestling with the task in mid-June. He credits Shear with suggesting the name Columbia. So the ceremonies and symbols of Apollo 11 were finally set. Salutations from the Space Coast. This is Michael Anish, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 202 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 11, Media Coverage and Public Relations. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that and more on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute the second most popular level of donations, and that is the Vostok level. There are 33 so far this year. Vostok donors give $10 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, Vostok donors. I had several afterthoughts about this week's episode. 
How did you feel about Paul Haney's treatment? He did an excellent job, but Shear thought he had too much of the spotlight, so he removed him from that task. I'm kind of with Shorty Powers on that subject. Haney should not have been removed from that position at such a critical time. That was a bad decision in my opinion, but that's just me. What did you think about Neil Armstrong? What a team player he was. A humble person that wanted to share the glory with all of the people that worked on Apollo. What an excellent choice he was to be the first man who walked on the moon. We will have more on Neil Buzz and Mike Collins in the next few weeks. And the third thing I want to talk about was what did you think about the ideas for memorializing Apollo 11? I like the idea of a complete Apollo-Saturn stack erected in the style of the Washington Monument in the nation's capital. Wouldn't that have been cool to be able to go to Washington and see the entire Apollo stack in vertical position? <laughs> i tell you what, that would have been quite an attraction, I think. That was a good idea. Too bad that didn't happen. Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive uh, several donations to support the podcast over the past week. Owen W. from the UK donated at the Soyuz level. Duffy J. from New Mexico donated at the Sputnik level. Robert D. donated at the Mercury level. Tobias S. From Austria, donated at the Vostok level. Jack R. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Jim F. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Ted H. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. John S. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. And Grant M. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level. Thank you so much, donors, for doing that. I sincerely appreciate it. That brings our... Total Patreons to 106, with a goal of reaching 150 before the end of the year. Our overall number of donors is at 142, with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. For those of you who have not donated yet in 2017, it's not too early, and it's not too late. Please keep in mind Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. If you are enjoying this content and can afford to help, please do so. Remember, you don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up for Patreon for a dollar per month, sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the homepage and click on the links on the right side of the page. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page on my website, spacerockethistory.com, based on their donation level. I was pleased to see the podcast received several new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past week. I would like to thank Artie0002, Brichar499, Space Nerd Chris, and Gibbamania for their kind reviews and the all-important five-star rating. There was one other review that was anonymous. I want to thank whoever did that. I sincerely appreciate it want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who've already done so, like my retweeters for March. 
Jet City Star, 1202 Alarm, AMH Podcast, Ashley Jamesley, Aviatrix 79, at Cotton Science, Bcon 63, Bennett Con, Bennett Can Tweet, Bert at Home, Bios 23, Bob B. Bobson, Bonner to You, Brett Lonsway, Buddy P. Murphy, Captain Beardy, Cotton Science, Craig Labert, David B. Nugent, Duke of Oil 60, Design for Coffee, DJ Bubble, Falcon 124, Futurama King, Herbouche, History Mile, History 20th, In Session Film, Indy TM42, Jacob Hahn, James 2904, Kadavi 1202, Keith Drinkwine, KESA Space, KHS Astronomy, Lanyard 73, Logbook Guy, Martin Rutzler, Matt Milko, Maddie Bellinger, Michael Hoadley, Miss Tuck, My Turn Racing, Pass Cannot Die, Pee Wee 888, PJ Ward 58, Plunder 100, Pompeiator, Parkhurst P1, Papillion 3033, Rapid Mustang, Rocket Noob, Rachel 86, Ray Buell, Skibby, Sticky, Tardomatic, this is Alex Boyd, The Ends Podcast, TMRO Space, William Bullock, Wayne Neville 75, and We Martians. I really appreciate it. If I missed anyone, let me know, and I will get to you next week. This is the end of content for this episode, and you're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will start the biographies of the crew of Apollo 11 as we continue our detailed study. In podcast news, I was able to shrink down my RSS feed enough for all 202 episodes to be available on iTunes. I did this by removing the topical tags. This will only solve the iTunes problem for a few episodes. Then, once again, the early episodes will start rolling off the feed again, and there won't be anything I can do to fix that. So make sure you get those early episodes downloaded before they roll off of iTunes. And also remember, my website has, and always will have, all episodes. They're all 202 are at the website now, and you can get to all of them and listen to them there or download them there if you want to. Okay, I have some uh, podcast statistics to share. These are the countries 11 through 20 for downloads in February 2017. 11 is Switzerland, 12 Netherlands, 13 Austria, 14 South Korea, 15 Denmark, 16 Norway, 17 Spain, 18 Japan, 19, India, and 20, South America. I want to give everybody a big shout-out in those countries. Thanks for listening. In personal news, I have been able to see two launches so far. The first was the Falcon 9 Echo Star launch, and that one went off very early in the morning. It was scheduled for 1.34 a.m. We got there about uh, 20 minutes after 1, and we found an excellent place to view the launch right off the highway in Titusville. 
The pad was directly across the water from us. There were several other cars parked there, but none was blocking my view. Then, SpaceX put a hold on the launch, and uh, they set a new launch time of 2 a.m. So we kind of waited it out, hoping it would work out, and we watched the SpaceX broadcast from our cell phone. And about T-minus four minutes, I started getting pretty excited, so I got out of the truck and uh, watched the final countdown. Everybody else was getting out of their vehicles, too, watching it. And at 2 a.m., uh, we saw the engine start firing, and we could see an orange-colored flame shooting out of the rocket. It pretty much lit up the sky. Then, about a minute later, we heard the rocket thrust. It took that long for the sound to get to us. It was really spectacular and beautiful, and I absolutely loved it. There is nothing like being there in person. I did upload a video of the launch on my YouTube channel. If you want, you can check that out. And next week, I will tell you about the second launch that uh, we were able to view. Okay, that's about all I have for this week. Hope to have episode 203 up by next Thursday. So long for now.